Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thanks for your support on Patreon, John Harding. John Harding was responsible for delivering some of the mysterious one-sheet bulletins that later transpired to be the Edict of Restitution. Thanks for that, John. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click on the link in the description below. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 40 of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all to the Thirty Years War. So last time we looked at how Emperor Ferdinand leveraged his position in the Holy Roman Empire to achieve great things for Habsburg power. He reworked the old relationship between the Austrian and Bohemian estates to Vienna and brought these portions of the Habsburg hereditary lands closer to absolutist Habsburg control. But this wasn't all he did. The late 1620s were awash with efforts taken to bring some kind of justice to the religious situation in Germany. After achieving so many stunning victories and trouncing all enemies that had presented themselves, it was perhaps to be expected that by spring 1629 the Emperor would seek to leverage these victories by making a bold new step backwards into history with the Edict of Restitution. Initially, calls for redressing the religious imbalances had come from moderates as well as fundamentalists in the Catholic camp. Some measure of realignment was necessary, they said, to account for the illegal transfer of land from the church and the pace of the counter-reformation. Between late 1628 to early 1629, though, Ferdinand seems to have brought this to a new level and produced the most blatantly Catholic interpretation of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, which, it was said, he wanted to return the empire to. It was impossible for many to accept, and in this episode we're going to examine why it was such a big deal, what these objectors planned to do about it, and what Ferdinand planned to do to make them see the light. He had, at the time of the edict's passing, no enemies to speak of, so long as the Danish peace talks wrapped up, yet he still possessed the dominant Wallenstein with forces unequalled in the field. The wheels began turning in Ferdinand's mind, and he saw Wallenstein not only as the instrument of the Habsburgs, but also as an instrument of the Catholic Church. Surprisingly, perhaps, Wallenstein wanted no part of this strategy, and he was far from alone among his Catholic peers in feeling just a little bit uneasy about what Ferdinand was doing. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to Spring 
1629. In some respects, it was an innocuous enough document. It was not declared from the rooftops or pronounced with trumpets, but simply printed in Vienna and passed across the empire. It was a single sheet of paper with four columns of writing and the emperor's signature at the bottom. Appearances were, of course, deceptive, and ripples of discontent spread out from the empire as the contents of the Edict of Restitution were digested. In a version printed in Würzburg, someone had scrawled on the Edict the phrase the root of all evils in Latin. But the controversy by no means stopped there. Almost at the same time as the Edict was circulated, a Jesuit author, Paul Lehman, released a pamphlet of his own as a form of accompaniment, wherein he argued that Whatever is not found to have been explicitly granted should be considered forbidden. This was nothing less than a demand for Protestants across Germany to prove the legitimacy of their possessions, or suffer the consequences. In Brandenburg and Saxony, the empire's most important Protestant electors, neither George William nor John George could reconcile themselves with its contents, and they had grown resentful at the presence of Wallenstein's large army near their borders. But what exactly had the Edict of Restitution said? At its core was the intention to turn back the clock to the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, which itself had applied to the status quo of 1552. To do this, any land which had been secularised or lost by the Catholic Church since 1552 was to be returned. Much attention was also placed on a particularly tricky article of the 1555 Peace, the so-called Reservatum Ecclesiasticum. This article had stipulated that if a Catholic ruler converted to Protestantism, he would have to abdicate from his offices, and a Catholic would replace him. Understandably, the Protestants of Germany had fiercely objected to this, and hadn't recognised it in the final form of the 1555 arrangement, whereas their Catholic counterparts had. Because they had not recognised or accepted it, Germany was awash with, in the Catholic opinion, illegitimate Protestant rulers and dynasties sitting on bishoprics and estates which should not have been theirs in the first place. Another few points about the edict are worth examining. The first is that the edict banned all forms of Christianity save for Lutheranism and Catholicism. This, as we learned, meant that the dispossessed Calvinist Elector Palatine Frederick V would not be able to return to his lands and thus Maximilian of Bavaria would be safe. It also meant, of course, that several Germans were now breaking the law, including the other Calvinist elector, George William of Brandenburg. The edict seemed not to concern itself with the sheer messiness of its implications. How were Calvinists across the empire to be treated, for instance, and was it even possible to evict them all? This brings us to a second point, that by providing the ironclad Catholic interpretation of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, Ferdinand missed the entire point of that peace. In 1555, for a bit of context, with so many years of conflict behind them and so many issues still unresolved, what was really needed was a peace agreement which all could agree upon. Thus, the end result was that the Peace of Augsburg was deliberately ambiguous, and this was arguably its greatest strength because every prince could claim some kind of victory within its contents. By steamrolling over the sensibilities of 1629, though, Ferdinand was also ignoring the valid concerns of those that had even agreed to the peace in the first place in 1555, 
and these concerns were more, rather than less, pronounced in 1629 than they had been before. Finally, a striking aspect of the edict was the question of whether Ferdinand even had the authority to issue it. The sweeping declarations therein gave no hint of the shaky constitutional ground which the emperor was on, but it's worth noting that no imperial diet was even called to ratify it. Ferdinand acted and legitimised the edict purely on his own powers. By doing so, he gave further demonstration of his willingness to bypass the traditional checks and balances on his office, while also appealing to the constitution wherever it suited him. By virtue of his own authority, Ferdinand laid down the gauntlet to all who would oppose this incontestable edict. To the end, Ferdinand would maintain that the agreement of the electors at the Mühlhausen meeting in September 1627 had provided this authority, but we will recall that even the Catholic electors present at that meeting had expected something far less incendiary than what the emperor actually produced. And what Ferdinand produced was incendiary before, but it was also, in the words of C.V. Wedgwood, little less than revolutionary. The edict opened with an innocent enough paragraph. We, Ferdinand II, by the grace of God, elected Holy Roman Emperor, etc., offer our friendship, grace and goodwill to all and every elector, prince, etc., and all other of our and the empire's subjects and faithful followers regardless of dignity, estate or being. It is without question all too well known that our beloved fatherland, the German nation, has long suffered from damaging disagreement and destruction. This extract reminds us of Ferdinand's intention to arrive at a peaceful solution by ending the damaging disagreement and destruction. Yet it is fair to say that he signally failed in this quest. After justifying the Catholic position, criticising the Protestants for breaking the religious and profane peace of 1555, insisting that the followers of the Augsburg Confession refuse Catholics the same rights they demand themselves, the edict then presented its most infamous intentions. So we are determined, for the realisation both of the religious and profane peace, to dispatch our imperial commissioners into the empire, to reclaim all the bishoprics, archbishoprics, prelacies, monasteries, ecclesiastical property, hospitals and endowments which the Catholics had possessed at the time of the 1552 Treaty of Passau, and which they have been illegally deprived of, and to put into all these Catholic foundations and endowments duly qualified persons, so that each may get his proper due without unnecessary delay. We therefore command to all and everyone under punishment from the religious and public peace that they shall at once cease opposing our ordinance and carry it out in their lands and territories, and also assist our commissioners, such as hold the archbishoprics and bishoprics, prelacies, monasteries, hospitals, benefices, and other ecclesiastical property, shall forthwith vacate them, and return and deliver them to our imperial commissioners with all their appertences. Should they not carry out this behest, they will not only expose themselves on grounds of notorious disobedience to the imperial ban, under the religious and profane peace, and the immediate loss of all their privileges and rights without further sentence or condemnation, but to the inevitable real execution of that order and be distrained by force. We mean this seriously. And there was no doubt that the emperor was serious indeed, for on the 24th of March 1629, a few days before the edict was made public, he had authorised Count Tilly and Wallenstein, his two main commanders, to use the forces at their disposal to wrest acceptance 
from the Empire's figures. Since both commanders possessed soldiers far in excess in anything which any objectors to the edict could field, it was only inevitable that the edict itself felt more like an opportunistic method of conquering Protestant lands rather than a legitimate way of arriving at a peace that all could be content with. That said, one figure who declared his satisfaction with the edict was Pope Urban VIII, a surprising development in some respects, since Pope Urban had long since distanced himself from the Habsburgs, cancelling the papal subsidy to Vienna in 1623, for example. Nonetheless, Pope Urban declared on the 5th of May 1629 that Our soul has been filled with a marvellous joy by the recent edict of your majesty, which orders the secretaries to return to the priestly estate the ecclesiastical lands they have long held, and in which are contained other provisions, which we bless, that remove obstacles that have up to now held back the Catholic restoration. When we reported these developments in secret consistory, i.e. of the cardinals, the apolistic senate rejoiced and praised your well-deserving piety, desirous of the reward of your Noble action will be more victorious. Thus heresy will have learned that the gates of hell do not prevail against the church, which legions of angels and the arms of so powerful Austria happily defend. How closely you have hereby bound the soul of the pontiffs to yourself, our nuncio will declare to your majesty in more magnificent fashion. Appearances were again deceptive, though, because even as the Pope seemed to loudly approve of this bold step, we notice that, unlike the language of the edict, no mention of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg was even made. This is because, incredible though it may sound, the papacy didn't recognise the Augsburg settlement, because this would have involved officially recognising the schism in Christendom and the Protestant creeds that it produced. The Pope was later to distance himself from the edict and deny he had ever approved of it. This despite the fact that William Lamoromani, Ferdinand's confessor, had written to the Pope and exclaimed, No Roman pontiff had received such a harvest of joys from Germany since the time of Charlemagne. Pope Urban would have disagreed. An air of resentment clouded the papal examination of the edict. Even while Rome's agents could declare themselves Agreeing in principle with the advancement of Catholicism, Ferdinand never sought their advice when creating the edict. In Emperor Ferdinand's view, this was because the edict was a judicial, not a spiritual matter, and in this, Rome had no jurisdiction. And Ferdinand had a point, because even though religion was the measuring stick, the immediate result of the edict would not be the rescuing of souls, but the reapportioning of land. Predictably, land where Lutheranism was relatively new and had taken off in popularity after 1505 were bound to be lands that were most affected. Austria and Bohemia, already pacified and forcibly converted, would have put up some form of protest, but as we learned, Ferdinand had undertaken what should be considered a trial run of the edict in these lands. Land owned by the church was returned, Protestants were ordered to leave, and Catholics were greatly empowered. On a smaller scale even, Ferdinand's Styrian homeland in Inner Austria had also suffered the same fate in the late 1590s. Evidently, these three instances were not singular errors in judgement, but something we can see as a pattern, and one which the Emperor was determined to apply to all of the Holy Roman Empire. Ferdinand could claim that he was not only acting in his lawful authority as Emperor, but also simply enforcing the terms of the Peace of Augsburg which had incorrectly been allowed to lapse. Again, though this claim was exposed as disingenuous, 
for whoever had actually consulted that same treaty arrangement. Its strength was in its ability to please, not in force. Not even Charles V, the King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor simultaneously, believed himself powerful enough to remove Protestantism by force. After nearly a century of German princes being left to their own devices, the result of Christendom's organic spread and fragmentation posed an even more formidable problem, and yet Ferdinand pressed relentlessly on. While he couldn't ban Lutheranism outright in Germany, he could push it back to its 1555 status, before Habsburg weakness and the zeal of the Reformation had caused the new creed to explode in popularity. Ferdinand had seen for himself that all forms of protest could be overcome with the sword, and thanks to Wallenstein he had plenty of swords on standby. The dispossessing or forced conversion of Austrian and Bohemian nobles was an experience which was now extended to the empire. Unsurprisingly, those that had rebelled against the emperor were at the top of this list. The Lower Saxon Circle, the old Danish sphere of influence, and Westphalia came under the emperor's care, since Lutheranism had spread there only gradually after 1555. However, this was not all, since scattered across the empire existed hundreds of convents, monasteries, bishoprics, archbishoprics, abbeys, and even churches themselves that had been purchased from their old Catholic owners and transformed into new secular principalities or incorporated to enlarge old ones. The bill of the edict demonstrated just how much Germany had transformed in 75 years, but the pace of change and the sheer organisational challenge before Vienna didn't stymie the emperor's enthusiasm. Some 500 pieces of church land were up for grabs, with Württemberg provided with the largest bill of all, losing 14 large monasteries and 36 convents. Other German rulers stood to lose up to a third of their immediate wealth to be returned to a church organisation, which was itself in no position to return these lands to their 1555 purpose. And that's because in many of the regions where the old church leaders had been replaced, no adherence to the Catholic faith remained, and Ferdinand had already faced a legion of priest shortages when attempting to fill even the Austrian and Bohemian vacancies. It's not clear exactly how he planned to fill the new raft of openings for church leaders, who simply didn't exist. The emperor's unfailing conviction drove him on, with the result that, notwithstanding the lack of clergy, within 18 months, some six bishoprics had been returned to the church, in addition to 100 convents with 80 more cases under the edict's review. It should be emphasised that in this process, no distinction was made between loyal or rebellious citizens and rulers, which gave the impression that the whole process was terminally unjust. Why should the clock be so severely rolled back, when those that had lived in 1555 were long since dead? What aims could this policy possibly serve other than offending Protestants, empowering the Catholics, and threatening even loyal servants as rebels? The pace of the imperial commissioners only aggravated the tensions. The edict applied to free cities and to independent figures like imperial knights, who owned a smattering of villages or towns. Since these figures were the emperor's servants by law, their lands belonged to the emperor and could be returned at any time to him, which meant booting out the old occupants or forcing them to convert if they wanted to remain in place. The knights, much like the free cities, were under the protection of the imperial constitution, but Emperor Ferdinand had demonstrated that he had no interest in adhering to the rule of law, so long as it suited him to circumvent it. 
the imperial commissioners turned their attentions to other weak parties, like the free cities of Augsburg, Heilbronn, Dortmund, Nordlingen, Kempton, Rothenburg, and so many others which had been Catholic in 1555, but had since been converted. In some of these cities, it was difficult even to find Catholics. How were these now to be appropriated and returned so arbitrarily to that key year of 1555 as well? Furthermore, since three generations of nobles had matured in some of these cities, their expulsion would mean the effective destruction of that city's economic and administrative functions. Multiplied over a wide variety of former Catholic cities, this would result in nothing less than the collapse of social order and the undermining of what little native economic activity still flourished. Indeed, Ferdinand seemed to have been willing even to dispense with old allies. According to the terms of the edict, the electors of Saxony and Brandenburg both stood to lose three secularised pieces of church land apiece. This went directly against the agreement which Ferdinand had made with John George of Saxony in 1620, when he had promised the Saxon elector that his lands would be safe and untouched if he'd only joined the emperor in putting down Frederick's rebellion. John George of Saxony had gained Lusatia for his troubles, but was now faced with the prospect of existing in isolation in an opposition party too small to achieve anything, or, on the other hand, he could accept the unacceptable. Actions like these proved that Ferdinand cared little for previous arrangements when he considered the bigger picture. The bigger picture was of little interest even to those in Ferdinand's close circle. Anton Wolfrat, the Bishop of Vienna from 1631, warned at this early stage that such a hostile edict directed towards Protestants could only serve to alienate them, arouse feeling of bitterness and desperation, and prolong the war that Ferdinand wanted to end. Others in Vienna floated between feelings of lukewarm enthusiasm and fear about the implications for foreign potentates who might use the opportunity that the edict presented to intervene in Germany and prolong the war by those means. While he may have genuinely believed that he was doing God's work, this very work had the potential to destroy the empire from the inside out, and at precisely the wrong time. As Peter H. Wilson wrote, Issued in 1629, the edict was a political miscalculation of the First Order. It alienated Saxony in the critical months prior to Sweden's intervention. Though Lamarameni influenced the decision to issue the edict, it also reflected Ferdinand's legalistic interpretation of the imperial constitution and was intended to lower, not heighten, the tension. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If Ferdinand's spiritual advisors were largely against the edict, and if moderate Catholics came to loathe it as well, then it's hardly surprising how dangerous and inappropriate Wallenstein felt the edict to be. Already torn towards one venture he did not believe in in Italy, the emperor now demanded that Wallenstein use his army, as many as 150,000 men according to some estimates, to aid the imperial commissioners in enforcing the edict. But Wallenstein didn't want to use his men for this purpose. If the emperor had no use for him, he wished to be dismissed once his debts and the wages of his soldiers were paid. If a campaign was what Ferdinand wanted, then some form of holding action against the king of Sweden, recently liberated from his Polish war, was surely a wiser strategic move. Policing the empire and supplanting traditions built upon generations of history and beliefs was not within the job description of Wallenstein, and he refrained, at least for a while, from imposing the edict on anyone. Fortunately for Ferdinand and the Emperor, the mere presence of Wallenstein's soldiers in the Protestant North was coercion enough, but Tilly's Catholic League Army soldiers were employed more often than not, which further exacerbated the sectarian tensions that were already felt. We're going to continue examining the story of how Wallenstein got on with the edict, but before we do that, I want to let you know about something that's really, well, it's very exciting, guys. Normally I talk about Patreon in this kind of break part of the episode, but instead of doing that, I'm going to let you know about something. You see, I've been sitting on this huge surprise for quite a while now, basically since spring of this year, and I've been working really hard on it to get it up to scratch and get it ready for you guys before I actually announce it. And now it's pretty much ready, and I don't want to actually say what it is, but what I do want to do is to tell you to make sure that you listen to the announcement episode when I go into all of these details. You won't be able to miss it because if my calculations are correct, it should be out already. In fact, it should be out at the same time this episode is released, just for your convenience. So please do listen into that. And yeah, I mean, it's really incredible that I finally get to announce it to you guys. And I hope you're interested to see what it is. I haven't been as excited about anything since I first started When Diplomacy Fails podcast, so that should give you an idea of how excited I am and how much I really believe in this new venture for our show. If you can't wait any longer, then, well, just exit from this episode and listen to it right now. I think you'll be as excited as I am once you do. Sorry to be cagey, but it's probably the best way to ensure that everyone listens to the episode and then we're all on the same page. Rest assured, within the next few weeks, it'll all become common knowledge. So if you're not bothered re-listening really to it, you'll find out either way soon enough. But if you want the inside scoop and all the details, that episode should be out right about now. But back to our current episode right now. 
Wallenstein wrote increasingly anxious letters to the emperor, cautioning him of the dangers of the new policy. Over the winter of 1629-30, he sent two letters to Vienna, the first insisting, All the trouble is caused by this untimely and strict Catholic Reformation, and also by the imperial edict concerning the restitution of church lands and the expulsion of the Calvinists. Wallenstein would add in a second letter, The imperial edict has turned all the non-Catholics against us. The entire empire will be turned against us, aided by the Swedes, the Turks and Bethlen Gabor. Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania's death in 1628 didn't deter Wallenstein from making this point. So long as the emperor pushed, there was no guarantee that someone else, perhaps someone powerful, would not push back. The opposition from the Protestant Germans, papacy and even moderate Catholics may not have taken Ferdinand by surprise, considering the potential for disruption which he showed his anticipation of when he officially employed his two generalissimos to use force. However, opposition from his cousins in Madrid must have come as a shock, especially since the Jesuit influence in Spain was exceedingly strong. Unlike Ferdinand, though, King Philip IV of Spain couldn't afford to ignore political consequences, and he advised the emperor to find a more suitable outlet for his piety and zeal. Such advice should not lead us to imagine that Spain was a beacon of tolerance, as he had done so many times before, King Philip IV merely wished to influence Ferdinand to pacify his German subjects, so that Ferdinand would be in a better position to help him in the Netherlands or in Italy. From Italy, the commander of Ferdinand's soldiers, Colalto, warned his emperor and Wallenstein that the edict undermined the Habsburg effort in the Mantuan War. Convoluted efforts were even set in place in Spain to remove Lamaromani, Ferdinand's confessor, and thus hopefully reduce the confessional venom which the man poured into the emperor's ear. For the moment at least, though, these efforts were unsuccessful. Despite the affront to their sensibilities, and in many instances to their rights, Protestant and Catholic alike didn't rise up in any organised fashion against their emperor, as the French Huguenots had recently done in France. Whether the failure of the Huguenots was fully appreciated or not, the imperial constitution was sufficiently robust for the empire's key potentates to rely on it rather than on the application of force. Even those Catholics who stood to gain from the edict wished to have it weighed against the emperor's actual legal position and capacity to issue such commands. Furthermore, the majority favoured examining each individual case on its merits rather than the blanket restitution proclaimed by the edict. The elector of Saxony, and in time, believe it or not, Maximilian of Bavaria were both among this camp. It is interesting to discern some points from the Empire's reaction. The first is that, even among Protestants, some form of restitution of secularised land was expected. Critically, though, it was expected that these lands would be taken from rebellious subjects, such as Halberstadt, where Christian of Brunswick had hailed from, or Magdeburg, whose administrators had declared for the King of Denmark. The concept of restitution was not what they objected to then, it was instead the arbitrary, sweeping nature of the edict which failed to discern friend from foe and failed to consider the results of treating so many innocent Germans like criminals. Another point is that the Peace of Augsburg remained the measuring stick of all that followed and would remain the Empire's guidebook for dealing with religious questions for some time, 
requests to examine each case involved weighing the demands of the edict against the stipulations and directives of the Peace of Augsburg, implying that the Peace of Augsburg from 1555 still commanded a large amount of legitimacy and respect. The final point concerns the belief which began to pervade Germany in the aftermath of the edict, that Ferdinand's efforts to roll back the clock were actually just the beginning, and that rather than settle either for the edict or the 1555 Peace of Augsburg upon which it was based, deep down, Emperor Ferdinand wished for nothing less than the elimination of Protestantism and the establishment of an absolutist Catholic Habsburg regime in the empire. Fear of this ambition provoked some passionate displays over the following months, and granted the Protestant pamphleteers an invaluable supply of propaganda to fire across the continent. Ferdinand may have believed he was acting according to the literal interpretation of that defining peace agreement from 1555, but to his critics, and largely in the opinion of posterity, the Edict of Restitution was a careless ploy for dominance launched by a man at the apex of his personal powers and influence. These views would mature in time, but the invasion by the King of Sweden would help sharpen all dilemmas and perceptions of what Ferdinand had done. It is worth emphasising that no direct evidence exists of Ferdinand's intentions to extirpate Protestantism or establish a centralised Catholic absolute monarchy in Vienna in place of the traditional empire. What Ferdinand did, he did in pursuit of his single-minded quest to achieve justice and righteousness for his family and for Germany. A conservative at heart, it may well have genuinely troubled his conscience that the rulings of the Peace of Augsburg had been allowed to lapse, had been manipulated or ignored altogether, and perhaps he believed that by reinforcing his strict interpretation of the 1555 peace, he'd be making things right and thus making the empire stronger. Regardless of these motives, though, what mattered in the end was how he was perceived, and while moderates were willing to tolerate some change, the simple glaring fact is that the edict went too far too fast. It's also fair to deduce that, as the emperor, Ferdinand ought to have anticipated the edict's potential for torpedoing was perhaps the last chance to make a lasting peace in Germany before Gustavus Adolphus invaded. Once the empire was in disagreement and fragmented in its opinions over the emperor's character and the safety of their rights, the door was wide open, as Peter H. Wilson has asserted, for a foreigner to enter the scene and acquire moral support. The first steps towards the shattering of German political unity would have to come from the moderates, and John George of Saxony, whether he liked it or realised it or not, effectively led the way. From October 1629, he was in talks with his Brandenburg counterpart to host a meeting, where some united front would be formed to safeguard their rights and ensure fair assessment in any judgments relating to the edict which followed. The message which the Elector of Saxony gave was one of pacific, cautious action, and not one of angry, defiant resistance against his emperor's poor policy choices. Yet, as John George of Saxony was soon to learn, by late 1629 it had become increasingly impossible to tread a middle course in the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Emperor had made sure of that. In the next episode, history friends, we'll switch gears and examine the Dutch-Spanish War for a little while. This conflict, so long in the background, requires us to visit it again so that we can fully grasp its effect on the war in Germany. Spanish woes, Dutch joys, and a whole load of diplomacies on the way. So I hope you'll join me for that, and I hope you'll check out the episode that's out right now 
explaining what that big exciting bit of news is that I've been sitting on for so long. Until then, though, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 40 of The 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.